I was at a, a family's home yesterday, and、um, this sister, she had just given birth to her second child, and she goes, Pastor Luke, that curse, that curse is real. She's like, it hurts so much. And I just was thinking about, man, all that mothers go through,、uh, even in the beginning, to even give birth to all of us,、uh, they go through a lot. So、uh, let's pray for them, and let's also pray、uh, for our church. Uh, to be loving not only to our mothers and our fathers,、uh, but to one another, and we'll get our word. So let's pray. God, we do pray、um, for those in need of you this morning. God, we come before you thinking that we need this and we need that, and we need a break, we need more money, we need more time, God, but we know we need you. Convince us of that. Persuade us of that. Help us to truly believe in that so that we walk away from this service not thinking that we need, but rather we have. We have everything we would ever need and want in Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, to echo what Pastor David、uh, shared about next week,、uh, we are excited to have Pastor Bill come. So please、uh, give him warm, friendly smiles. At the same time, don't uh, uh, overwhelm him as he comes, especially after the message.、Uh, make your way straight over to the open house, and he and Sally will be waiting for you. I met with him earlier this week. He's very excited、uh, to get to know all of you.、Uh, so please lift him up in prayer. So either at one o'clock, Or three o'clock. If you're going to come at three,、uh, might as well go grab lunch with people and then you guys can head on over at three o'clock. And also, please mark those two dates,、uh, the 31st and June 1st, for a time of prayer and where we can have some discussion and questions answered、uh, regarding Pastor Bill and these next few steps for our church. So last week, we finished、uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And There we saw that he is presenting Jesus. He's presenting what the kingdom of God looks like. And he's describing what the people who are in that kingdom, how they live. And now, today, what we're going to do is just take this one passage and spend time on how now Jesus invites people into that kingdom. So far, we've seen Jesus declare and, and share about what this kingdom is like. Now, we want to focus a little bit about how he brings people into this kingdom. Kingdom of God. And the way that he counters people is very different depending on who you are and your circum,、uh, circumstances. And we're going to see that in these two characters this morning. And we're not saying that there are different ways to heaven, different ways into the kingdom, but the way that he, he addresses our sins, the way that he addresses your history, the things that you are dealing with, it is different. And we're going to see those differences in Nicodemus. In chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Now, Nicodemus, he's a religious leader. You can call him an insider. Furthermore, he's very well respected, a leader of the Jewish society. He's educated. He's also a male. On the other hand, the woman, she's an outsider. She was an outcast from society because of her moral decisions. She was an outcast religiously because she was a Samaritan, she was not a pure Jew. Furthermore, she was also a woman in a patriarchal society. So we can see that these two characters, they're very different, especially on the outside. But as complete opposites they may be, they're more alike than you would think. 
Which is why I think the gospel writer John, he places them, think about it, he places Nicodemus in chapter 3, Samaritan woman in chapter 4, because we're supposed to see these two figures together. And it tells us something about us. It tells us something about how Jesus wants to engage with you personally. And perhaps you can relate with Nicodemus, perhaps you can relate with the woman, perhaps both. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. So the first, we're going to see how Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus thinking this, I know what I need. I know what Jesus needs to give me and bring for me, and therefore, Jesus, will you deliver? That's the approach that Nicodemus has. And the woman, she comes to Jesus thinking, I know what I deserve. I don't deserve much. Therefore, I don't deserve Jesus in my life. And so we're going to see those two things. So the two points this morning is number one, Jesus challenges what you think you need. When you engage with him, he's going to challenge what you think you need. And we're going to see that in Nicodemus. And secondly, Jesus is also going to challenge what you think you deserve. We're going to see that in this Samaritan woman. And then we'll uh, look at some of the results that follow. So he challenges what you think you need and what you think you deserve. So let's look at Nicodemus. Now, if you remember last week, one of the takeaways was we need to know who Jesus is personally, not simply know about him. So the charge was for us to take those steps, to be intentional, to do what it takes to see who Jesus is for yourself, to either read scripture, pray in a way that you're speaking with him personally getting to know who Jesus is through the church, whatever it may be for you, get to know him for yourself. That was the challenge. And that's exactly what Nicodemus is doing. All through this time, he's been hearing and even witnessing all of these things that Jesus has been doing throughout the land of Galilee, throughout the region. He heard that Jesus, he teaches with authority. It's very different from the other teachers of the day. So he recognizes all of these things, things that he hears about Jesus. So he finally comes to a resolve and says, you know what? All right, I'm going to go see for myself who this Jesus is. And that's Nicodemus. And so he acknowledges Jesus, at the very least, to be a teacher, to be someone worth respecting. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. This is what he says to Jesus. He says, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he knows certain things about Jesus. He knows that Jesus can do certain miracles. He knows that Jesus has a kind of authority. Now he wants to see for himself. He wants to engage with him face to face to see who this Jesus really is. Now a couple of things about Nicodemus. The passage tells us that he comes when? By night. In the night time. And he does that because he knows that there are many Jews who oppose Jesus, especially the Pharisees. And Nicodemus, he himself being a Pharisee, he knew that if he was caught seen, uh, being seen with Jesus, that he would be ostracized. That all of his peers, they would ridicule him. They would actually kick him out of his society. So in fear, he comes by night to inquire more about who Jesus is. So note that about him. He's kind of in this this middle ground. In between these two places, on one end, he knows he's a Pharisee. 
He knows that his group is supposed to oppose Jesus. Because Jesus, remember, all throughout this time, his ministry, he was condemning the way that the Pharisees have been interpreting and distorting the Old Testament. And they've been taking advantage of the people. So Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees. So he knows that he, by nature, should be hating Jesus. But on the other hand, there's something about Jesus. He can't deny the things that Jesus is doing. He can't deny all the great things that he hears about Jesus. Perhaps you, you can't deny the fact that Christianity, it's not going to go away. People talk about it. Something about Jesus is real in people's life. So you might be in this middle ground. You're kind of hesitant. But at the same time, you recognize that there's something about this Jesus figure. And that's what Nicodemus is like. He's in this middle ground. He's not fully opposed to him. And he's not fully confident at the same time in openly coming to Jesus. He compromises. He stays in the middle. He comes by night. Now, with this in mind, look at the way that Jesus receives Nicodemus. I mean, think about what's going on. Nicodemus, he's kind of, sw- uh, 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 he's kind of swaddling both fences here, isn't he? Straddling both fences here, isn't he? He's not fully committed. He's not fully devoted to Jesus. He's not fully uh, decided that I'm going to follow him and see him as God. And with that in mind, Jesus, he very well could have just rejected him on the spot and called him out saying, you're afraid to be seen with me, that you come by night and you want to come to know me and ask me questions? How dare you? And Jesus easily could have just dismissed him. I would have. It's kind of like using somebody for something that they have, but not really wanting to be seen with them. As I was reflecting on my own life, I remember in kindergarten, every time I brought my soccer ball, my friends loved me and we would have a great time together. But I realized the days that I didn't bring my soccer ball, I was kind of uniquely alone. And I kind of wondered why. Now, as I reflect, I can see. If there's something that you want, you're not embarrassed to be with them. But other than that, you don't want to be seen with Jesus. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. And yet, look at verse 3. What are the first three words you see? Jesus answers him. That's amazing because considering the the manner in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus does not blow him off. He answers him. Even though Nicodemus is fearful, he's ashamed, he's a coward, yet with this small desire to see who Jesus is for himself, and Jesus answers him where he is. And wherever you are, However you feel about Jesus, whatever your your past has been like, perhaps your view of Christianity and the church, perhaps you have conflicting thoughts, maybe you're ambivalent about who this Jesus is. You recognize that you're not in the best place spiritually. And that might make you wary in coming to Jesus saying, you know, I don't have a full devoted heart yet, so I'm going to stay away for now until I fix myself up a little bit. And he's saying, no, you don't have to. Come to him as you are with your doubts, with your reservations, with your fear and with your shame, and Jesus will still answer you. Do you have doubts? Are you unsure if I let this go? This thing that I'm holding so tightly onto into my life, if I let it go, will Jesus really give me everything that I would ever want and need? Are you afraid? Come to him. He'll answer you. See for yourself. Now, with all of this, there's something very important that we have to understand when we engage with Jesus. We see this in Nicodemus, and it's this. 
is that when you encounter him and when you engage with God, you cannot set the terms of how this relationship is going to be. We see that in Nicodemus. Whatever assumptions we may have, whatever expectations we may hold when we come to Jesus, Jesus, he's going to undo all of them, and he's going to give us those answers. But first, he's going to ask the questions, not us, the right questions. Let's see what I'm talking about. Look at how Nicodemus addresses Jesus. You know, formally, he hasn't asked him anything yet, but he begins by calling him rabbi. So right off the bat, the implied question behind what he's saying is, he's asking Jesus, who are you really, Jesus? We know you're a teacher from God, but are you more? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Show me that you are. Show me something. Prove to me that you are more than simply a teacher. He acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher from God. Doesn't recognize that Jesus is God himself yet. He recognizes at the very least that Jesus, he does these great miracles and teaches with great authority, but he doesn't go as far as to confess him to be the son of God, that Jesus is God himself. He just simply thinks he's a great teacher from God. That's his assumption. So the way that he approaches Jesus is, show me something, prove to me that you are really God. And he wants to see for himself. And once he sees that, then he's going to decide, I'm going to worship him. Once he sees something great, something extraordinary, some miracle, then he's going to decide in his heart, I will follow him. So in his mind, he sets up the criteria. And he's going to use that to then decide if Jesus is truly the Son of God. So he sets his own terms to decide if Jesus is worth worshiping. Do you know how insulting that is? to the God of the universe? If you are God, then show me that you are God, then I will worship you. You know what that sounds like? When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are truly the son of God, you can make these stones into bread. What does that sound like? It's very dangerous to come to God with those kinds of questions, with those kinds of terms and criteria. Now, to explain by way of a very imperfect analogy, one thing that I get all the time is when people meet me for the first time, you know what they always say? I had no idea that you were Korean. I thought you were Chinese. I thought you were half white and all of these things other than Korean. And for some stupid reason, I get offended. And I go, I'm pure-blooded Korean. My mom's tribe can be traced back to the original Koreans. My dad's tribe, just as much. And I start reciting Korean history. I talk about all the K-pop stars I know, about how spicy of foods I can eat. And I get so offended, like I have to prove myself. It's highly insulting to have to prove yourself to who you really are to someone, someone who doesn't know. Very presumptuous to come to Jesus with an agenda that says, prove to me that you're God. 
give me what I want, then I will worship you. And it's very dangerous to come to Jesus with a set of agendas without thinking about his. It's really dangerous to use your agendas as a measure whether or not Jesus is really God and really worth worshiping. Are we like Nicodemus here? Do we have similar assumptions? We do the same thing. In our minds, in our pride, we have these criteria set in place that need to be settled before I worship Jesus. Our relationship with him is so often conditioned by that word, if, isn't it? If Jesus can give me what I want, if Jesus can give me that future career, if he can give me that relationship, or even give me my love for this, or if Jesus doesn't touch this area of my life, I will give him everything else. Do you see how dangerous that is? You're simply saying, if Jesus is more than this, if more than a teacher, then prove to me and I will worship him. So we have to be careful thinking, Jesus, here I am at church. I'm taking these intentional steps in getting to know you. Now show me. See if you can qualify the criteria in my mind for you to be king. Here's what's amazing. Jesus still answers you. Verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He answers, but did you get this? He doesn't answer your question. <laughs> He's not going to submit to your terms. He's answering something that seems like totally from left field, right? Nicodemus is saying, show me that you're more than a teacher. And Jesus says, you cannot be born again unless you see, or you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to ask you a different question, and I'm going to answer a different question. That proves Jesus' deity. He's not going to come under your criteria, nor is he going to answer to your terms. If you're wanting a God who can answer to your questions and satisfy your criteria, then you just disproved God. Why? Because your criteria is more powerful and more important than God. A God who answers to your questions and satisfies all that you want, by definition, is not God. You already disproved him. And we wonder why it seems like God is so far away, right? It's because he's not answering our questions, because he doesn't need to. That's who God is, and yet he still does. He sets the terms. He asks the questions. He provides the answers. And we have to be careful of not approaching Jesus as if our criteria, as if we ourselves are the God in this relationship. Tim Keller, a pastor, he writes this. If you say, I believed in God, I trusted God and he didn't come through, you only trusted God to meet your agenda. Your God is your agenda, not Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you weren't worshiping Jesus after all. And Jesus, he will always challenge your agenda. He will always challenge your terms, what you think you need. Because we may think we need Jesus, the, the miracle worker. I need Jesus, the genie in a bottle. I need Jesus, the one who's going to fix my relationships. But he challenges all of those and says, what you need is to be born again. That's what Jesus says. 
What you really need is to entrust your life to him. What you really need is a new life, new set of motives, new aspirations, new hopes. What you really need is to make his agenda yours. And that's his agenda for Nicodemus. You need to be in the kingdom of God. And this is how you get there. You believe in me. Let's look at the other person, the Samaritan woman. With Nicodemus, we see that Jesus challenges what he thinks he needs. Now, in the very next chapter, we see this woman by the well. Now, with her, Jesus challenges her in the same way, but he doesn't challenge what she thinks she needs. He challenges what she thinks she deserves. What does she think she deserves? She thinks she deserves to be an outcast, to be ostracized, to live a life of fear. And it's that fear of being exposed that fear of facing that kind of ostracism, that's what's governing her life here. You know, in our conversation with Jesus, we find out that she's been married to five different men. And even now, she's with another man. So can you imagine the kind of gossiping that's going on throughout the village? Or perhaps people don't know yet. Can you imagine the kind of fear that she's living, hoping that no one would find out the kind of life that she's lived? And all of her life, it's driven by fear. She's building her life based upon this fear. There's a quote by an American author. He once writes this. We build castles with our fears, and we sleep in them like kings. Do you know what he's saying? You do so much in your life driven by fear, afraid that no one is going to like you, afraid that you're going to be a failure, afraid that you're not going to be a good mother or a good father, afraid that your parents won't be pleased with you. And that dries all that you do, and you sleep in your castle that you've been building for yourself, and you are so unaware of it. This woman, she's been just going about her day, not knowing that she's living in this castle of fear. She's just nonchalantly, nonchalantly just going to get her water. And she's driven by this very fear. Where do we see that? Look at verse 6, chapter 4. It says that this woman came to draw water at the well around the sixth hour. That's around 12 o'clock. Now, what do you know about 12 o'clock in the Palestine desert? It's hot. It's scorching hot. And it also says that she's by herself. That tells us something. Because back then, when you go get water, you don't go at 12 o'clock. In fact, you go very early or very late. And on top of that, the well, it was a social event. That's where all the women gathered to talk about the latest trends, to gossip, to have fun, share recipes. No one goes at 12 o'clock, but she goes. Why do you think that? Why do you think she goes at 12 in the scorching heat by herself? Because she's driven by fear of being exposed, the fear of being hated on, to be gossiped against, fear of exposure. And it's clear what kind of woman that she is to the rest of this village. And this fear of shame, this exposure, is strong enough that she'll even go to the extremes of fetching water by herself. And so she thinks she deserves a life that's isolated. She thinks she deserves a life that needs to continually avoid people. She's convinced, this is what I deserve. This is what my life should be like in light of what I've done. Do you see that? Now Jesus, he comes and challenges that. 
How so? Because he overcomes every boundary to be with this woman, to reach her. Think about it. He overcomes the racial barrier. We see that she's a Samaritan woman. And what a Samaritan person is, they are a mixed breed. They're not pure Jew. They have some Jewish blood, but they're mixed with other races around them. So because of that, if you were a pure Jew, you did not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus, he overcomes the racial barrier. Next, he overcomes a physical barrier. The text tells us that Jesus, he was in Galilee. That's up here. He was in Galilee, and then he decides to go down to Jerusalem, which is down there. Now, usually the way that Jewish people go from Galilee to Jerusalem, they go all the way around. They even go across the Jordan River so they don't have to go through this Samaritan land, this land of half-breeds that they called. But what does our text tell us? Jesus goes straight through. He doesn't go around because he has plans to meet this Samaritan woman by the well. He overcomes physical barriers. Top of that, he overcomes gender barriers. In Jewish custom, it wasn't, it wasn't um, favorably looked upon for a man to associate with women, let alone talk about things of God. And culturally speaking, women were not supposed to engage in these kinds of conversations. Jesus, he was a respected Jewish teacher. And this woman, she was this uneducated peasant. Not to mention, she has a reputation of being with many guys. And so for Jesus to approach her at the well, a public place, it was an extraordinary thing. That's why when he approaches her, she's startled. Verse 9. Why? Because in her world, it doesn't make sense for someone like Jesus to converse with her. It doesn't make sense that Jesus goes out of the way to meet her. That's the same with us. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would go out of his way to pursue and meet you. And even this morning, maybe this is your first time really thinking about who Jesus is, getting to know him more. Or perhaps it's been a very long time since you really had a vibrant relationship with him. And when Jesus first encounters you, it might startle you for a little bit. Why? Because you know you haven't been living the life that you should have been living. It might catch you off guard, and you know what Jesus is about. He's holy. He is mighty God of the universe, and it might startle you. And we might still respond in fear, but Jesus, in light of her fear, in light of her situation, he crosses the racial barrier. He crosses the religious and gender barrier. In light of all of that, he says, go call your husband and bring him here. And right there, she's exposed she doesn't fully uh, reveal her cards. She says, I have no husband, and that's all she says. But then Jesus, he goes a little further and calls around and says, you're right. You're right in saying you have no husband because you have had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. This tells us that Jesus, he knows every single thing about you. Every sin, every mistake, Every inadequacy, every flaw, every imperfection that you have, but then he goes out of the way to meet with you. He crosses barriers, not only racial, not only physical, not only gender, but he crosses the barrier from heaven to earth to meet with you. 
That's how much he believes you belong in his kingdom. And he does so while knowing all of your sins, while knowing all of your mistakes, and while knowing that he still comes and meets with you, and he's been pursuing you all along. And his love for you has never changed, not one bit. And that's one of the most powerful truths of the gospel. The fact that Jesus knows every one of your secrets, every one of your flaws, and while knowing all of that still, he continues to pursue you, and his love never has changed, and it never will. You know, there's a short article that I read about this person's experience with with hidden uh, sin and shame. And it's about his time in high school. And he shares about how one day uh, his English teacher, Mrs. Stover, uh, she assigned a simple three-page book review of this book called Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Now, he himself, he really enjoyed this book, so only within a matter of few days, he finished writing this book review, but everyone else, they seemed to be procrastinating. So a few days before it was due, all of his friends started to complain just how they dreaded writing this review, and he shared, you know, I finished this review pretty quickly. I'm already done. I really enjoyed the book. And his friends got agitated, and they said, if you like the book so much, why don't you write my review? Now, this is where he goes wrong. He goes, how much will you give me if I write your review? So as you can guess, by the end of the day, he had a lot of money. And he also wrote a lot of reviews. And he says that he became a Charles Dickens expert (laughs) in high school. Now, can you imagine what happened? One day he's sitting in class, and he hears that dreaded intercom. So-and-so, can you come to the principal's office? And as he enters the office, he sees his friends already sitting. And on the principal's desk, he sees his book review and a pile of other ones. And the principal, all he does, he just opens his book review, starts reading some portions, and another student's book review, and he goes, it sounds very similar. And he says he just stared at the student for about 10 seconds, and he knew that he was going to get suspended. And right when the principal was about to say something, the class bell rang. And the principal goes, we'll finish this tomorrow. And he leaves the office. Now, here's the problem. Next day, he wasn't called to the office. The day after that, he wasn't called to the office. In fact, the principal forgot about it, or he thought he forgot about it. But he describes something after this. He says, every night... When his parents said, I love you, he heard a voice inside of his heart thinking, would you love me if you knew who I really was? (laughs) Every time the teacher complimented him on what a great student he was, he would think to himself, no, I'm not. I'm a fraud. He notes this. Did his parents' love for him ever change? No. No. The way that he tried to receive love changes because of his shame and the power of sin. Did his teacher's view of him ever change? But no, but the way that he received love, he couldn't receive it because of the power of this secret shame. And the only way that he could be free from this is they find out about what he had done, and on top of that, if they still continue to pursue him, that's the only way he can be free from this shame. 
That's a powerful truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus knows everything you've done, and yet he still crosses the barriers to get to you. Takes all of your rebellion against God, the one who created you, all of your imperfections, your past record of sins, and he takes all of them upon himself. Yes, it's free for us, but it cost him his very life taking the punishment for our sins, the shame that he felt when he was on that cross, naked, on display for the whole world to see, so that we will never have to experience that. And to think that his love never changes, it never has, and it never will. Do you see the way that Jesus approaches this woman? It's very different from the way he approaches Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, he has to be stern. He has to say, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what terms you're actually bringing up here. But with the woman, he's gentle because he knows that she's struggling with this secret sin of this shame. She needs to be reaffirmed of this unconditional love. I want to end now by just looking at the two responses that these two people have. You know, we don't hear about Nicodemus again, except for all the way in chapter 19 of John. You don't have to turn to it, but let me read to you what's going on there. This is after Jesus is crucified and after he dies. And then we read about Nicodemus one more time. It says this, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Do you see the change? Nicodemus is no longer ashamed. He comes openly to take the body of Jesus, to pay it the respect, to bury an expensive, lavish oil and spices and myrrh. And what's the cause? What's the reason for this change? Well, if you remember in his first encounter with Jesus, Jesus tells us that you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, how can these things be? And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up for all to see, and then you may have eternal life. What happened? Nicodemus, he saw Jesus lifted up, dying for his sins, dying for his shame, dying for his fear. And in light of that, he's no longer afraid. He's no longer longer afraid of the other Pharisees. His devotion, his commitment to Jesus is so much more powerful than it was before. He sees him as God, finally. How? He let go of his agenda. For the Samaritan woman, she runs back into the village. And have you caught what she yells, what she says to all the villagers? It's amazing. You know what she says? Come see a man that I've met. Come see a man. Out of all people in that village, she should not be saying things like that. There's a man that I've met. Come see him. But did you pick up on how she's no longer controlled by fear? She's no longer ashamed. She's no longer hiding out. But she openly confesses that she's met a man who knows everything that she's ever did. And he's not only man but he's Jesus, son of God. When you come to Jesus, 
when you think about your life to see, am I living in this kingdom of God? Let go of your agendas. Let go of your terms. They're standing in the way. For Jesus to be God, you need to come to terms with his agenda. And perhaps you think you deserve far less. Well, hear this. Jesus doesn't think so. He thinks that you deserve far greater than what you actually deserve. So when you do come to him, don't hold on to anything. Come with him with nothing. Thomas Watson, he once writes this. If your hand is full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. People who are poor in spirit drop the pebbles because they want the gold and they know it can only be received by empty-handed believers. And when you know that you have nothing to offer God, you are in a position to receive all that he offers you. So now we're in full circle. We're in the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Remember what we said. Blessed are the poor in spirit who have nothing to offer God, and he will bless you. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's come to know him this summer with no agenda, empty-handed, and let us be blessed. Let's pray.